0: you're listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Adrian Frost and
1: Laura Geiser. This month, we're reading Beyond Behaviors by Dr. Mona Delahook. Let's get into it. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Laura. Welcome back to the SLP Book Club podcast. Today, we're going to be discussing Chapter 5 of Beyond Behaviors by Dr. Mona Delahook. And before we get into the chapter, we're going to do something a little bit different, a little SLP hot topic. Since we both are private practice owners, we thought we would discuss accepting insurance versus private pay and, you know, get into it a little bit.
0: Okay, Laura, so I do have some thoughts on this. You know, since we've been reading Dr. Delahook's book and also some of the other books we've read, like Lisa Murphy on Play, I've been thinking that... I feel like in the future, the way things are going to go is if you really want excellent, specialized help for your child, that you're going to have to pay private. And I think that this is probably the direction that all things are going. I mean, I don't know about like medical stuff. It's kind of different. But as far as like OTs, PTs, SLPs, even more specialized, definitely therapists. I am in therapy and I go through my insurance company and like, I like my therapist and she's a good fit. But ultimately, like if I wanted somebody who was really specialized in exactly what I wanted, I think I would just have to pay out of pocket. And I don't know. I'm kind of concerned that anybody who's like worth their salt, and this is not to say that school SLPs are not because some of the best SLPs I know are school SLPs, but You know, sometimes I do worry about this requirement that we be like jack of all trades, master of none. And when you're trying to do everything, when you're trying to treat fluency, when you're trying to treat selective mutism and then also our tick and then also language and then also, you know, kids who have behaviors and kids on the autism spectrum, it's like you don't even have time to think let alone like research or specialize in one topic. So lately, I've just kind of been thinking about that. I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts on that.
1: You just got me thinking, I mean, it's off the topic, but I was I was thinking, why aren't we using more like a medical model? My dad's a doctor. He's an internist. So he's a doctor of internal medicine. You would go to him as kind of your general practitioner and Whatever ails you, he kind of then channels you, you know, refers you out to a specialist unless he can handle it himself. Why wouldn't it be like that in speech therapy? Because parents sometimes wouldn't know what they want. Have you ever had a parent who has they think that the issue is with pronouncing words and then you realize you assess the kid and it's something totally different? Or they don't even necessarily recognize. So why would we expect them to find the specialist that they need for their child? So it's kind of like, why don't we have a funnel? I use Kaiser. So that's kind of how it works. I don't have a PPO where you could just go to any specialist and they'll accept your insurance and blah, blah, blah. Like, I trust my primary care physician. I love her. And I feel like I go to her with the problems and she sends me on my way to whoever I need to go to. It is interesting. And personally, obviously, I believe that specializing is the way to go or at least finding a couple things.
0: Yeah, I've seen some things. So I've talked about it a little bit, but I was working at a private practice over the summer. And I got to see firsthand what it looks like to kind of work with regional center and with Kaiser and with other funding sources. And, you know, it's actually pretty disappointing. And I feel like really sad when I think about it, that people, speech therapists in private practice are forced to kind of either be financially successful, which means accepting insurance basically unless you're like so amazing like tara sumter and you have so much word of mouth and you have such a good reputation that you have a long wait list which happens but she's really specialized right if you want to make enough money to stay afloat and have this be your full-time job then you basically have to accept insurance and in some ways that's like making the deal with the devil because their restrictions are so intense like i felt like we were turning away kids all the time and it's like either it's like two sides of the same coin like One, we're turning away kids that could benefit because they're not fitting these pretty strict qualification standards or, you know, they're making too much progress. Okay, they're done, even if you feel like they could benefit from more you have to dismiss, or if they're not making enough progress, what is that? Yeah. Like they're making slow progress, but they haven't improved, you know, 30% over the years. So they're not benefiting from therapy and therefore they're not going to pay. And I just feel like that in itself is so sad. So then if you want to be morally and ethically aligned with yourself, then you say, okay, I'm going to be here to help your kid no matter what. But then the burden falls on the parent. To be spending, you know, $100, $120 per hour session. And I don't know, I just kind of was opening my eyes and made me feel really compassionate for parents because it's just a bummer that if you want the best for your child and you're already paying a bunch of money for insurance anyway, they have all these guidelines and it's like they're always looking for a reason to not see your kid.
1: Yeah, that is so tough. And in thinking about why I only accept private pay, it's because if I accepted insurance, then my caseload would not be what I want it to be. I only It's not that I only want to see preschool stuttering, but the majority of the kids I want to see are preschool yeah. stuttering clients. And essentially who's coming to me, because usually they're three by the time they start stuttering If they were younger than that, I would probably only be consulting with the parents anyway, not assessing. So by the time I'm actually meeting this child and assessing, they could receive services through the school. So they're not doctors. I've had parents tell me that their doctor, a parent of a child with ataxia, his doctor told the mom when she asked for a referral to a speech therapist because he was getting an AAC device. So I asked her if she could get a referral so that insurance would cover outside speech therapy. And the doctor just told her flat out, he's four years old. Speech therapy at this point is the school's responsibility. And why is a doctor getting involved in that? (laughs) Like it's none of his business. Let a speech therapist say who funds the speech therapy at that point. Why would a child with ataxia not receive speech therapy through their insurance. This is a medical condition that severely impacted his speech, but he was such a bright kid. And it's like, these are the kids that need the most support. That's why insurance should cover it. And we've got this totally messed up system. So anyway, that was a little bit of a tangent.
0: (laughs) No, it's valid. What I'm saying is
1: the parents who are coming to me are parents who go, you know, Maybe they've already reached out to the school and they've gotten an assessment, but they meet the speech therapist and they realize this person doesn't really know a lot about preschool stuttering. The majority of their caseload is different than this, and they might not have the best strategies or the best knowledge base for treating preschool stuttering, and that's when parents are going to come to me, and they're not going to have the option of insurance covering it anyway. So. You know, it's just about providing the best care. But even if I saw, I don't know, if I wasn't seeing preschool stuttering clients, I still don't think I would love to have my plan of care dictated by an insurance agency. I like to be really flexible with my clients, you know? Like yeah, things just kind of ebb and flow. It's super flexible. The parents are highly involved in the decisions that we make. And, right. you know, it just feels like, Why would someone who doesn't know this kid, who isn't a speech therapist, be making any type of decision about the treatment that we're giving them? Right.
0: Yeah. And here's the thing, right? It's like, I feel like that is kind of the choice that you're forced to make is like, do I want freedom? And that's, I mean, why I'm private pay too, is A, I just really Mm. didn't want the headache of dealing with insurance companies. And B, like, I want to be my own boss. I don't want anybody calling the shots. And it's not even a human with a soul. It's, like, some company that they just have these, like, guidelines. And it's, like, well, sorry. And I have seen some bad things, too. Like, I have a close friend whose daughter, you know, is severely impacted by a rare condition that she was born with. She's nonverbal and very delayed. And she has to fight so hard with her insurance company and you know, the private practice that they're trying to place her at because they keep returning her saying she's not ready for speech yet. Mm-hmm. And it is so annoying because I'm looking at her. I'm like, she is non-verbal. Yeah. She needs help. She has no system for communicating right now besides, I don't know, some, I think she has like one or two baby signs kind of, and maybe some like vocalizations, but I'm like, why can't you do eye gaze therapy? Why can't you give her choices? Why can't you just support the parents at home so that she can at least choose between two options for food or learn a couple more signs so that she has some functional way of communicating? Yeah. I don't know. It's it was incredibly frustrating. And she ended up going through her dad is a chiropractor and heard from one of his clients about a nonprofit in our area that works to help kids get speech. And they partner with a local university and they're university clinic so now she's at least getting something for her daughter but it's in a clinic and i said you know there's benefits like i'm not gonna i know the therapy i was doing in the school clinic it wasn't horrible but at least there are supervisors that are there to you know steer the kids in the right direction but i just thought like wow if you have a kid these are the kids who need services the most so anyway i don't know it's very frustrating
1: that's the thing, and that's why the kid that I worked with who had ataxia just killed me. The kids who need support the most just often are like falling through the cracks and it's so difficult to see. Yeah. I'm gonna recommend that if you are a private practice SLP interested in this decision, listen to Tara Sumter on the Private Practice Success Stories with Jenna Castro Casbon podcast because she talks mm-hmm. about why she doesn't accept insurance. And she mentioned the fact that if she did accept insurance in order for her to make her rate, she would have to raise her prices across the board for everybody. And like, then the people that aren't paying through insurance are just getting gouged because she's having to make this adjustment. And it's like, what kind of world are we living in?
0: It's wild. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I hope this was helpful for everybody and that it got, you know, some thoughts flowing through people's heads and If you have anything to say, you want to chime in, go ahead, comment on our Instagram, let us know. Yeah.
1: Yeah. All right. So stick around. We're going to take a quick break and be back to discuss chapter five of Beyond Behaviors. I want to tell you about Tiny Talkers group curriculum. If you're an SLP looking for more work-life balance and a fresh way to do things in your private practice then the Tiny Talkers group curriculum might be just what you're looking for. Tiny Talkers groups are set up as a way to provide accessible speech and language support to young children in a small group setting. Our friend Megan Samuels, creator of Tiny Talkers, has done all the planning for you. When you sign up for the curriculum, you get a full 36-week program, divided into summer, fall, winter, and spring semesters. The plans are easy to implement and adjust as needed to meet the needs of your clients. They include material checklists and parent handouts for each session. And the best part is, Megan designed each week so that all the materials you'll need can fit into one sensory bin. So once you get your group set up, you're done. In the years that follow, you'll pull out that bin and go. No planning, no stress, just fun. If you want to learn more about Tiny Talkers, go to tinytalkersgroupcurriculum.com to check it out. Make sure to use our code BOOKCLUB10 at checkout to get 10% off your order. We love Tiny Talkers Group curriculum, and we know you'll love it too. The SLP Book Club is not just a
0: podcast, it's a community. Go to our Instagram at SLP underscore book club
1: to join the discussion and connect with us after each episode. Want even more of the SLP Book Club? The resources we make to support the content of the books we read are available for free on our Patreon or at the Laura G. SLP Teachers Pay Teachers store. You can find links to them in the show notes.
0: To learn more about the SLP Book Club, go to theslpbookclub.com. You can contact us by emailing hello at theslpbookclub.com. Follow us on Instagram at slp underscore book club or on TikTok at the SLP Book Club.
1: All right, welcome back. So today we're discussing chapter five, and that is addressing what underlies behavior, working on challenges from the bottom up. And... I'm not sure. I know the next two chapters. I don't know if it's the rest of the book, but in the next couple chapters, she really weaves the story of one child throughout the whole chapter to demonstrate what she's talking about. And in this chapter, it's the story of Morgan. This is a little boy who, as a baby, had severe colic, three-hour stretches of crying throughout the night, which ended at five Mm. months. And then he became a really sweet boy when he was calm. But when he wasn't happy, he was really moody, irritable, and controlling. He would cry when he was dropped off at school. And his first grade teacher was really worried about his social skills. But at home, he had a really optimal environment with loving parents and all his needs being met. So Dr. Delahook says it would take a lot of digging to find out what was triggering him and what was causing some of the behaviors they were seeing. In this chapter, we're going to learn how to identify anything that's contributing to a child's behavioral challenges so that we can then address it. And we're also going to learn how to connect body up and top down strategies, which can slowly increase a child's tolerance for new experiences. Dr. Delahook uses the acronym IDEA, I-D-E-A, as a guide for investigating below the surface when a child has challenging behaviors. So the I is inquire, learn about the child's history and track his behaviors to see if you can find a pattern. The D is determine, so figure out what circumstances are contributing to a child's distress. The E is examine, so really examine what the investigation tells you about triggers and underlying causes. And then the A stands for address, address developmental challenges contributing to the behaviors through interactions and targeted therapeutic support. We're going to start with inquire, and that's really going to be what most of the chapter is about. She dives into the other ones in the next chapter. Dr. Delahook says it's standard practice to take a case history, get a really complete case history for a child, including information about pregnancy and childbirth. We need to know about a child's early relationships because we know that they're really important for brain development. And there are worksheets on pages 137 to 139 that give examples of questions to ask about pregnancy, infancy, and early history. And what I noticed when I read this was one thing I've never really asked parents about because obviously I collect case history and do an interview and we talk about pregnancy and early childhood, but I never really ask about sleep patterns, which is now... (laughs) We'll get into it reading this chapter, but it makes me think that this is really something we should be finding out about right from the jump.
0: Like a missed opportunity for us to have some like piece of the puzzle. Yeah.
1: And of course, this is an area where you don't want to overstep and get into their parenting because sleep does feel kind of like a parenting issue. Like you're judging the way that they parent if you tell them the way to do it. So it's a little touchy, but Dr. Delahook can do it. And then when I looked through these, I mean, really look through the questions she asks, because there are some really good ones that I wouldn't have used. Like, how would you describe the child's first year? And then there are options. What I expected, enjoyable, manageable, moderately stressful, or highly stressful. And I feel like that would tell you so much about, (laughs) you know, the child's physical state. If If a parent is just like, oh, I thought it would be okay, but it was, you know a mess. Right, right. Um another good question she had was was there anything about your baby or toddler's behaviors that were confusing to you at any point? Which is a good question that might bring up some interesting responses that could tell you a lot. So, look at those. And then she talks about tracking behaviors. So, use just a simple recording method and then what you observe will provide clues to patterns, causes and triggers of behavior. Figure out the underlying needs that the behavior is meeting for the child and discover the adaptive and protective functions behaviors serve for a child. There's a worksheet for tracking behaviors on page 141, and it just has the time of day, the activity or requirement or trigger that led to the behavior, the behavior that you observed, the duration of the behavior, and then the recovery time. So for our little guy, Morgan, his parents tracked behaviors for two weeks, and at first the information was confusing. They couldn't really get a clear pattern the triggers varied widely. We'll see later that the lack of patterns was useful information in and of itself. We'll move on to the D, determine what circumstances contribute to the child's distress. When you can't find a pattern, you'll need to dive deeper into health issues and processes for a child, starting with the sleep-wake cycle. With Morgan, his parents said he had trouble sleeping as a toddler. When Dr. Delahook delved deeper, she learned that as an infant, They would drive him around in the car for an hour to lull him to sleep, then gently carry him into the house. Even at age six, he was still waking up multiple times each night, and the entire family wasn't really getting consistent sleep. And the parents told her that they were recently allowing him to play video games on an iPad until he fell asleep because it was the only way they could get him to settle down at night. The E stands for examine. Examine what our investigation reveals about the triggers and underlying causes. So for this child, There was a conference call with their pediatrician and Dr. Dalahook. Their first order of business was to improve Morgan's sleep. The doctor recommended they try melatonin, but first wanted to see if the family could improve their sleep hygiene. They wanted to see if improving Morgan's sleep would improve his emotional and behavioral regulation. She shows us Morgan's iceberg. So Dr. Delahook probably examines everything she's found using her iceberg that she puts together. At the top, he was moody, controlling, irritable, had difficulty with separation, inconsistent peer interactions, and frequent meltdowns. So those were all his observable behaviors. But then when Dr. Delahook was investigating and figuring things out, she found below the surface immature social and emotional development. Chronic Unidentified Deficits of Deep Sleep Cycling and Restorative Sleep Patterns, and Vulnerable Stress Recovery Patterns. So then our A in the acronym is Address Developmental Challenges Through Our Interactions and Targeted Therapeutic Support. For Morgan, the chronic sleep difficulties were contributing to a lower threshold for emotional regulation. His stress load fluctuated depending on his sleep the night before how many transitions he needed to manage that day, and how he was feeling inside his body, his interoception. They found a correlation between constipation and emotional and behavioral outbursts as well. And, okay, I have a quote here, and this is something that Tara Sumter always says too. One important step in managing developmental challenges contributing to behaviors is to track how much the child is dealing with to help titrate what is asked of the child at home, school, and in therapies. And she always tells these stories of when she works with her clients, she checks in with them to see if they can increase the load that day. She'll say something like, you know, we worked for six minutes last time, do you think you could do seven this time? And then the kid might say, you know, I'm really tired. I didn't sleep well last night, or I had so much work at school today. And then she makes decisions about how hard they're going to work in speech therapy that day, based on how the kid presents in front of her, not just like her own plan. (laughs) I just think that's good to be always keeping that in mind. Sometimes a kid just because of what's going on, maybe his sleep, maybe constipation, you know, something isn't going to be able to do what we want them to do. And that's okay.
0: You know, I do have to comment and say that this was so interesting watching her walk through each step and uncover more and more things that were going on that you would just never think about, like the sleep thing. It's like, oh, well, he doesn't sleep well. And it's like, okay, that seems typical, right? Like that's not really that unusual. But then when you consider it in this other from this other perspective, it's like, wow, so much was happening with him, the iceberg. You know, it's a really good visual to think of it. There's so much under the surface that's contributing to what you're seeing. But you need the parents to be on board. You need them to be able to give you this information. I'm sure some of it's sensitive, just like you said. It's hard to admit that your child gets up and wanders around or sleeps in your bed. And there's a little bit of like a shame factor involved. Yeah, of course. So I don't know. I feel like dr delahook's amazing you know me too
1: so if you're reading this book with us I do have to say one thing for some reason in the last two chapters she really got on a she starts using the word titrate so much so and nice. I had not really ever heard the word titrate I had to look it up like I don't come across a word very often where I go what exactly does that mean like I could kind of use context clues on this one but it's like a chemistry term where you're like lessening yeah. the effects or adjusting like levels of chemicals <laughs> and she uses it so much. Oh, I don't know. You know, when, okay. when you start seeing a word that an author likes and you go like, I didn't realize you didn't notice it. Oh, my gosh. It is like scattered throughout. So no, just-
0: I probably just skimmed over it. <laughs> titrate okay everyone
1: okay she used it at least i'm gonna say five times i
0: just discerned the meaning from the
1: content (laughs) (laughs) titrate okay i'm off i'm done okay all right so we have a worksheet on page 145 for tracking a child's stress load in real time it has info about whether the child is experiencing stress how the child slept their food intake that day health issues and any additional stressors We have a plan for Morgan that she's going to describe. They implemented a new sleep hygiene routine for the whole family. It was usually really rushed and chaotic at home at night, very Mm task-centered. So parents were trying to get things done with little relaxation time together. So the mom started doing a meditation before she left work on an app on her phone. The dad arranged his work schedule to work one less hour a day for six months, which is like That's crazy. Great if you can do that.
0: (laughs) You know what? You can't say they're not committed.
1: (laughs) I know. They are committed to their child, and I love that. (laughs) Maybe not something every family could do, but... Right. So the dad was able to pick up Morgan an hour earlier and be less fatigued when he got home. And then both parents were going to speak in softer tones because Morgan was sensitive to adults' emotions and tone of voice. They would have playful, fun conversation at dinner instead of rushing to eat while watching the news. And instead of all of them turning to their screens after dinner, they would begin a new ritual like reading a book together and also dim the lights throughout the house in the evening, play soft songs in the background, and provide other general cues that it was time to slow down and relax. And then they made a rule that there would be no screens for an hour before bed. And they would give Morgan a firm, comforting massage after his bath if he wanted one.
0: I want a massage after my bath every <laughs> I <know. laughs> Maybe I should start having some behaviors. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> Call Morgan's parents. <laughs> Get the Morgan. Yeah. Okay. So within a couple of weeks, Morgan would wake up only once per night. And within three months, the entire family was sleeping better than ever. So it's important to remember here, it wasn't just Morgan who wasn't getting sleep. He was waking up his parents throughout the night. Nobody was getting deep sleep in this family. So, you know, I'm sure the parents' emotional, their stress level is worse when they're not getting sleep and that's impacting the kid too. It's just like this system-wide problem. All right. So sleep is often overlooked, but it's so important to our general health and well-being and emotional regulation. Mm. And Morgan's irritability and moodiness decreased significantly once his sleep was better. But then the next step was to work on his social and emotional development, which was immature because of his history of regulatory challenges. So it's kind of like You have these challenging Mm -hmm. behaviors come in, and then it kind of stunts your development, your social-emotional development. You don't get to have those natural, relaxed, engaging interactions with others when you have those challenging behaviors as much. We'll come back to Morgan in a bit, but we're going to talk about some sensory preference worksheets she has. We can use sensory preferences to help children calm their physical bodies. There are worksheets on page 149 to 153 to identify a child's sensory preferences that the parent or caregiver should fill out. And she puts in a note that she doesn't include taste as one of the senses you should try to use because using food as a sensory strategy can lead to health consequences like weight gain and avoiding the threatening feelings underlying emotional regulation challenges. So like emotional eating. And it's better to use other sensory systems to calm the child's body and mind and use food as a pathway for connection and socialization during shared meals, which I liked that description of why she doesn't use food.
0: Yeah, me too.
1: All right, so the worksheets that you can go through are auditory preferences so it has info about sounds the child enjoys their reaction to voices and volume and pitch tone music visual preferences so what does the child like to look at whether they notice when things are out of place whether they look at faces make eye contact what lighting they prefer touch preferences so what types of touch does the child find soothing do they like being covered with a blanket do they like a weighted blanket or Are there places they don't like to be touched or types of pressure they don't like? Fragrance preferences, types of smell the child likes, smells they don't like, and movement preferences. So what types of movement does the child like? The rate and rhythm of their movement. Is it fast or slow or predictable, unpredictable. Sensory experiences can calm a child, but they can also trigger a child due to trauma or toxic stress. So if a child does ever have an aversive reaction to a sensory experience that you're trying with them, just stop immediately and provide human connection in a way that comforts them. She also says when you do use sensory strategies to help calm a child, do so in a way that involves engaged interactions and not just exercises the child does by themselves. I picture just like giving them a stress ball and being like, or like go to the sensory corner, right? you know? Right. Well,
0: everything is like relationship based. Yeah. If yeah. everything's about like co-regulating and relationships, then it's like, yeah, that makes sense.
1: Yeah. You can't just throw a kid in a padded room with a bunch of fidget <laughs> toys and just go like, go have a sensory experience. Calm yourself down. Yeah. Yeah. Emotional co-regulation comes first and helps the child develop emotional self-regulation. Whether the child is on the blue or red pathway, the way to calm them is through human connection. Exactly what you just said. Remember that sensory preferences are dynamic and constantly shifting. So always assess current preferences. Avoid things like sensory diets because they overlook the dynamic nature of our sensory and emotional experiences as humans. Then she describes a passive pathway intervention developed by Dr. Porges. She doesn't go into a lot of detail. It's called the Safe and Sound Protocol. It exercises neural pathways associated with regulating behavioral state and social engagement. It's an auditory intervention, and early research has shown that it improves autonomic regulation and auditory processing for children on the autism spectrum. I looked it up a little bit. I couldn't find very much information on it, so it seems like it's something kind of new that they're researching right now. And then she describes body up and de-escalation strategies. She says to start low and slow. When a child's on the red pathway, their hearing decreases. So if you're talking to the child and nothing seems to be getting through, lower your volume and try a different tone or just stop talking completely. I love that one. Just stop talking. (laughs) (laughs) Offer a hug or nonverbal physical comfort. Move in gently and slowly if the child shows signs that they want physical touch, but if they push you away, respect their decision. And ask the child when they're not in this state what types of comfort they want when they're struggling. To connect with kids on the blue pathway... Instead of like when they're on the red and you're trying to help them calm their nervous system, when they're on the blue, you're coaxing them back into social engagement because they're totally disconnected. So these kids are really vulnerable. They're at high risk. You need to approach them with love and connection, not any demands or requirements. I mean, all of this, and she says it often, is so similar to what we learned in the whole brain child when kids flip their lid, you know, the ways to connect and redirect, or, you know, when they're having anything lower brain, they don't really have access to their top down processing. So, all right, we're getting back to Morgan. Once he began sleeping better, his social emotional development increased rapidly. Before that, his foundation was not strong because he wasn't getting solid sleep, emotional regulation or engaging in social communication. He didn't have the ability to cue into his bodily sensations and figure out how to help himself. When kids are having issues settling their bodies, they often have challenges in behaviors and social-emotional abilities. His most explosive behaviors decreased when his sleep improved, but not all behaviors. Okay. And here's where she says therapeutic activities like meditation, yoga, sports, and martial arts can really help kids connect to their bodies and minds it increases focused attention, sequencing and planning abilities. With Morgan, they needed to increase his top-down thinking and self-awareness, so they wanted him to be able to use his mind to calm his body, use his words to describe feelings and ideas, and navigate his own solutions to challenges. She recommends some mindfulness exercises for children that help them tune into their body and mind and settle down intentionally, pay attention to the sensations emanating from their bodies. She says that they help children develop their own personalized strategies for meeting what their body needs. And she provides the exact exercise she does with children on page 159. I loved it. I'll just summarize it kind of. It's like a script. Like she says exactly (laughs) what she says, but she has the kids lie down in a comfortable space, tells them that they're going to practice listening to their bodies. They take a deep breath slowly in and out, and they pay attention to anything they're feeling right now, like an itch on their toe or the cool floor. Or a thought in their mind, and you just pay attention and notice there's nothing right or wrong about what we feel in our bodies and minds, so you don't have to change anything. And then she tells them, We're gonna take two minutes to do this. When I ring the bell or tell you, you're gonna sit up slowly, and then they talk about what it was like. So after the exercise, you just support the children in noticing their experiences, including sensations, feelings, or thoughts. And anything the child says is okay, even if it's off topic, you're just no wrong answers. So then once you help children tune into their bodies, they end up being able to develop their own top-down strategies. We offer ourselves as support when they need connection or reassurance, but we want them to be able to do this on their own, self-regulate. So they helped Morgan with getting up in the middle of the night by talking to him about strategies he could use to make his body feel calm. There are worksheets on page 161 to 165 that are the same sensory preference worksheets, but they're adapted to use with the child so he can come up with his own plan for this. And when we ask children themselves, not just their parents, about their sensory preferences, it helps to reinforce awareness of the body and provides them the opportunity to come up with their own self-generated solutions, which reinforces top-down thinking. For Morgan, he came up with hugging his teddy bear or looking at a shell-covered nightlight that he liked in his room. So when he would wake up, instead of going to his parents' room, he tried to kind of calm himself down himself with these strategies. Self-soothe. Yeah, yeah. They used guided imagery with him also, where he pictured various scenarios that would help him calm his body and mind. He liked two techniques the most, mindful breathing, or um, something called sending friendly wishes, which is from The Mindful Child by Susan Kaiser Greenland. This is where the child sends friendly wishes to themselves. Picture having a fun, happy, healthy day, and then they send friendly wishes to others in the room and the world. so sweet. (laughs) Yeah. When we use a body-up approach and then we layer in top-down strategies, we can help a child manage their behavioral challenges. So Morgan was able to build confidence and have a positive and successful elementary school experience after this type of therapeutic intervention. In conclusion, wrapping up, she says... Always start with body up strategies if the child is on the blue or red pathway, or if their developmental level is mostly bottom up. And then when you use body up strategies, consider the child's individual differences and their sensory preferences to find ways to soothe the stress response. Human connection is the most important tool you have, and mindfulness will build a bridge from the body up to the top down. That's it. Great messages. I love it. Yeah. So I don't have a lot. Do you have anything to say about the stuff in this chapter?
0: I recently read the chapter that we're going to talk about in the next episode. So that's a little bit fresh in my mind and they're so connected. But I think it's so sweet that when you ask kids about what's going on with them, sometimes their answers really surprise you. Like they are far more insightful than we give them credit for, you know? Oh. It's actually really cute how he had that shell nightlight and he has these like comfort items that he likes and he can identify breathing activities that he enjoys and that are helpful for him. So I don't know. I just, I'm so happy that really reading all of these case studies, I'm just so happy that these families found Dr. Delahook because I feel like she must've been such an angel for them to help their kids, to look at things differently, to actually help them change their like home environment in a beneficial way for everybody. And to help them see their kid as like, not with these impairments or these difficulties that are going to continue forever, but something that's solvable if you just look at it from a different perspective. There's a lot of hope, I think.
1: Yeah. And as you were talking, I realized that we just talked at the beginning of this episode about private pay versus insurance. And let's think about this kid. This is a little boy who does not have a history of any type of trauma. She didn't mention any type of diagnosis like a, you know, any type of illness or physical condition or ADHD or autism. This is just a typically developing child who has behaviors. Right. So where where are these parents going to go? Is he going to qualify for an IEP or support in the schools if he just has behavior I don't know. It's hard. So this is an interesting thing to think about. Like sometimes these are the kids where you can't, you can't pinpoint a reason, you know, with these diagnoses, we go like, oh, well he has ADHD. That's why. Right. But this is a kid who for some reason always had difficulty sleeping, whatever that is. And, you know, right. It kind of perpetuated because he had trouble sleeping. It just created this cycle where no one was sleeping in his whole house. And To find that that was the main answer was just fixing his sleep. (laughs) It's just what a miracle for them because who was going to come up with that? Who was going to dig deep enough to figure it out? Like you said, it's just lucky that they found Dr. Delahook. I love that. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you learned a lot. And next time we'll be discussing chapter six, which is called Working on Challenges from the Body Up to the top-down, and we'll be looking more at how play and top-down thinking can be used to help children come up with their own solutions to emotional and behavioral challenges. And yes, I did just say play. I'm excited to talk about it. <laughs> I'm so happy. <laughs> All right, we'll see you then. Bye, Adrian. Bye, Laura. At the SLP Book Club, our mission is to learn, grow, and connect with other SLPs and educators. If you love what we're doing, the best way to support the podcast is to leave a rating and review wherever you listen. This helps other SLPs find the show so our community can grow even stronger. We appreciate you so much and hope you keep listening and reading along with us.